If you have your Bible today, I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. We'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 6, and we're going to start reading in verse 1. 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 1. And uh, Today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that's unique in all of Scripture in many ways. And in all honesty, whenever you read it, maybe you've never, uh, it's never stood out to you before, uh, maybe you have read it, and the whole time, ever since you've read it the first time, is kind of caused you to pause a little bit. Maybe raise an eyebrow, or, or at the very least, be kind of confused about the way that God acted in this situation. And admittedly, on the surface, it does seem like God may have acted in a way that we would consider too harsh for the situation at hand. Uh, by things we consider what uh, what had happened and, and the way that they did things, I think that what he did will make a little bit more sense. And beyond that, I think this account has a lot to teach us about doing God's work God's way. And so that's what we're going to focus on today is is doing God's work God's way. So if you found Second uh, Samuel chapter 6, if you're able, I'd ask you to stand with me uh, in honor of God's word. We'll pick up in verse 1. <clears throat> says, Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah to bring, up the ark, uh, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. They placed the ark of God on a new cart, that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence. And he died there before the ark of God. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Thus the ark of, God, uh, the, ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, I think for us to understand what is happening in this this text, we need to understand how we got to this point. And so we're going to have kind of of some backstory. I'm not going to go into all the detail, but but just to kind of help you understand what exactly is going on. You remember before Saul... Uh, Israel was ruled by a bunch of judges. So there were Samson and, and Othniel and, and a whole bunch of them. And during, the, uh, during that time, they didn't have a king. And towards the end of that period, Eli, who was a priest, he was also the leader of Israel, was, uh, was kind of in charge during that time. Well, during that period, the Israelites went out to fight one of their persistent enemies, the Philistines. Now, the Israelites went out, and, uh, and they would sometimes take the Ark of the Covenant, if you think about, uh, and this is... 
kind of silly, but think of Raiders of the Lost Ark. You remember uh, the, the Ark, the golden box and everything? That was the Ark of the Covenant. And so uh, they would sometimes take it into battle with them as, as because that is where God's presence was manifested. And so the Israelites got to uh, point A, and the Philistines were at point B, and they were going to go fight. The Ark comes in to the camp. All the Israelites cheer, hello, not hello, hallelujah. But hello doesn't make any sense, hallelujah. Um, here, here's the Ark of, of the Covenant. God's with us. And the Philistines hear what's going on, and they say, what's all this noise? It must be, it, they, it's the Ark of God. It's the Ark of the Covenant. We're in trouble now because this is the same God that despoiled the Egyptians and, and all the stuff that happened to them. But they went out and fought anyway, and the Philistines actually beat the Israelites. And so they thought their God was stronger than the Israelites' God, and they took the Ark of the Covenant, and they put it in the house, in the temple, of the false god that they worship called Dagon. Now, Dagon was... The, the idols that we found are half man and half fish, kind of like a mermaid or merman. And so um, so they, they set this Ark of the Covenant in the temple of Dagon. The next day they come out into the temple, and Dagon, the, the statue, the idol, has, is prostrated before the Ark. He's, he's face down. He's fallen, fallen on his face before the Lord. They stand him back up. The next day they come in, and not only is, is he face down, but his head and his hands have been cut off. And so they say, well, this is a bad deal, because the Lord is doing some stuff to Dagon. Not only that, but the Lord also started smiting the people of Ashdod, that's the city where they took it, with tumors in that whole territory. And because God was doing this to Dagon, because they were being smitten with tumors, they said, we need to get this out of here. So they said, they got the five lords of the Philistines together said, we need to get it away. Where should we take it? They said, take it to Gath. That's another Philistine city. They took it to Gath. The same thing happened. People of Gath said, we're not keeping it here. We need to get it somewhere else. Let's take it to Ekron. Ekron was another Philistine city. So the people of Ekron said, you know what? We're not too keen on this idea either because God was smiting them with tumors as well. And so finally the Philistines said, what we need to do because we're getting, we're getting killed here. We're going to send that ark back to Israel. We're going to get it back where it belongs. And the priests of, of Philistia said, well, you can't just send it back. You need to send a guilt offering. And so actually, if, if you read, it's, it's kind of a fascinating account. They make golden items to send back, one for each city that, that the ark, or one, of, one for each of these Philistine cities. They make little golden tumors. But they also make golden mice and put it in a box. And presumably that was one of the things that was ravaging them was mice and, and the tumors. And so they put it in a box and put it next to the ark and put it on a new cart, hooked the cart up to some milk cows, some dairy cows, and they point it towards Israel. And here's what they said. We're going to lock the, the milk cows. We're going we're to lock their calves in the stalls. And if those cows go to Israel... We'll know that this is from God, but if they, if they don't, if they go back to their calves, we'll know this is just a coincidence. And so they put them on the road, and the cows start walking, and they're mooing as they go. The Philistines follow them, goes right to Israel. They say, okay, well, I guess that settles it. Good riddance. So the ark goes into the area of, of a place called Beth Shemesh. The Israelites see it. They rejoice, they sacrifice the cattle, and do, make, a, make a sacrifice to the Lord there. And they should know better, 
But they decide, you know what, we need to look inside the ark. Because that, haven't you ever wondered what it would be like to look in the ark? They decide to look in the ark, even though they knew better. And the Bible says that because of that, God struck down, God killed over 50,000 of them. There must have been a long line to look in the ark. 50,070, if I'm not mistaken. So they say, we can't keep the ark here. Let's go up to Kiriath-Jerim, and we'll house it there. So they find a guy by the name of Abinadab, who lives in that area, and he is going to keep the ark at his house. They consecrate his son, Eleazar, to be the one to care for the ark. Okay, so all that, all that has transpired, and the ark sits at his house for a long, long time. So long, in fact, the Bible says in uh, in First Corinthians, or not First Corinthians, First Chronicles, uh, chapter thirteen, that during the days of Saul, they did not seek the ark. Acts chapter thirteen, verse twenty-one says that Saul was king for forty years. So we don't know how long the ark was at Abinadab's house. It was at least forty years. Some scholars estimate upwards of seventy-five to a hundred years. So all these years, the ark has been in the house of Abinadab. Saul, God takes his hand off Saul because of of Saul's wickedness. David is anointed as king. He has his battle with Goliath. He makes himself a, a mighty warrior, shows himself to be a mighty warrior. Saul dies. David becomes king. And he decides, Jerusalem is going to be my capital. I'm going to, I want the ark to be there too. So that not only will the people have a place to worship, they'll, they'll have somewhere to meet God. But this way, and this is, my, this is my estimation of things, it'll be a political as well as religious capital. Consolidating everything into one place. And so David says, let's bring the ark to Jerusalem. And that's where we pick up today. So that's how the ark got into the home of Abinadab. And like I said... Uh, I believe that there were some errors that were made in the way they went about doing this uh, that, that people and churches do today too. And I, I just want to acknowledge at the outset, what David was doing was a good thing, right? I mean, the ark was where God met his people. That's where his glory was manifested. And so having a place where the people could actually come to and worship, that was a good thing. But good intentions are not enough. I want you to notice the first error that they made. Look at verse 1 again. The first error they made was they didn't consult God. They didn't consult God. They didn't pray. And one of the things that stands out about David is all through his life, he was a man after God's own heart. We read that in the scripture. He was a man after God's own heart. Some people look at him in his incident with Bathsheba, for instance. They say, how's that a man after God's own heart? Well, he wasn't sinless by any means. He had all kinds of uh, flaws. But by and large... The bulk of his life, he tried to please God. He sought God. And one of the things that you read as, or notice as you read throughout David's life is over and over again, he would consult with God. He would, uh, before he would go out to a battle, before he would pursue an enemy, he would consult God. But if you'll notice in verse 1, he doesn't consult the Lord at all. Verse 1 says that David gathers 30,000 choice men of Israel. Now, the writer of 2 Samuel doesn't record this, but 1 Chronicles 13 also records this event. And it tells us that David gathered all these people and he consulted, not the Lord, but the captains, the leaders of the people. He said, this is what we're going to do. How's that sound to you? 
Nowhere does it tell us that God ever, or that David ever talked to God about it. Now, we see that, that that is a conspicuously absent piece of the puzzle, and the results are, are disastrous. Now, I think the lesson that, that's here for us is pretty plain. When, when we intend on doing the Lord's work, we really, in really all facets of life, we need to seek the Lord. Isn't that a novel idea? If you're going to do the Lord's work, maybe you should include the Lord in the plans. How many times do we as Christians, though, we, we, we fail to do this even as individual Christians? We'll be facing some, some decision, some crossroads in life, and we just don't pray. I mean, when, when, we, when we're sick, when we're hurting, when, when so-and-so's been in a wreck, when so-and-so's uh, lost a job, then we pray. But I mean just when we have those things that come into our lives, many times we do not pray. Maybe it's because we don't want to, quote-unquote, bother God. Oh, God's got a lot to deal with. I don't want to bother him with this. Why would he care about little old me? He's got the Milky Way to run, and here I am on earth. Maybe it's pride. Maybe we think we can handle it ourselves. We, we, can, we can figure it out on our own. Sometimes we just sometimes we just don't think about it. Have you ever done that? So you faced some decision, you got through with it, and you thought, you know what? I don't think I ever prayed about that. It's foolish. And, and we'll be given a, a job opportunity, for instance. We'll, we'll, we'll consider, should I date this person? Should I marry that person? We'll try to figure out where to go to college, vocational school, whether join the military, should I buy this home, should I buy that vehicle? We have all these things that come to our lives, and many times we just don't pray. We pull a David. Most of the time, that's a good deal, but not this time. He, he didn't seek the Lord. Now listen, he talked to the people, and seeking input and wisdom from godly advisors, that's a good thing. That is something that the Bible tells us to do over and over again, but that is not a a, a replacement for praying ourselves. And so David doesn't pray. Uh, we don't have any consultation with the Lord. He, he doesn't say, is this the Lord's will? Should, should Jerusalem be the ark's destination? Should I be the one to bring the ark? Um, is this the time to do it? He didn't have God's direction for any of it. And if we're going to do the Lord's work, if we're going to live for Him, we need to be People of prayer, we need to seek the Lord. And that's not only true of individual Christians, but we need to do that as a church. We start thinking about starting some type of a ministry or, or doing some sort of outreach. We need to seek the Lord. We need to seek His blessing. So mistake number one they made is they did not seek the Lord. They didn't consult with Him. The second mistake they made was trying to do the Lord's work the world's way. They tried to do the Lord's work the world's way. Look at verse 3 again. It says, they placed the ark of God on a new cart, that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of, of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. Full stop. They put the ark of God on a new cart. Now, the fact that it was new is good, because if something was going to be used in holy service, it was something that, that shouldn't have ever been used for, for just regular old uh, activities. But how is the ark supposed to be transported? Say, Pastor, I'm guessing since you're asking this question, it wasn't on a cart. But I can't remember. On poles. Yes, Exodus chapter uh, 25, verse 14. God says, you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark with them. Now, that's easy to understand. 
See, the ark was a wooden box. It was overlaid in gold. On top of it was a lid. It was the mercy seat. And so the, the high priest would go in once a year on the Day of Atonement with the blood of the sacrifice, sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. On top of that were the cherubim. They were two angels that faced each other. Their wings came out, touched one another, and above that is where God's glory was manifested, the Shekinah glory of God. On the sides of that, on the sides of that ark, they made golden rings. And they put poles through those rings so that nobody ever had to actually touch the ark. You remember during their, during their wanderings in the wilderness, they would move from place to place, and, and this was not a permanent thing. It, it was not set in stone. It had to be mobile. And so they had poles that they would carry it with. And, and instead of, of putting this ark in, in Samuel chapter 6, instead of putting it on the shoulders of the, of the priests or Levites, they put it on a new cart. Now, where do you think they got that idea? Well, how did the Philistines return the ark? They put it on a new cart and they sent it away. Now, I don't need to remind you that the Philistines were not followers of God. They were not believers. They were not what we would say Christians. They were idolaters. They were heathen. So when David and the Israelites decide to do these things, they're doing the Lord's work the world's way. They're trying to do things the way that they had seen the world do it, the, the, the way they'd seen the unbelievers handle things. Now, we don't know why they did it. I, I can't imagine anybody saying, you know what, Dave? Mind if I call you Dave, King Dave? I think we need to disobey God in this. Here's what we need to do. We know that, that the Lord says to carry it on poles, but here's what we do. Let's just do what the Philistines did. We'll just, we'll just disregard what God says. I don't think that ever happened. I think they probably had reasons that sounded good at the time. Maybe they said, and I don't know, it's not recorded, I'm just guessing. Maybe they said, you know what? God's law is pretty specific here. Maybe maybe he's loosened up over time. You know, things have changed a lot since they were in the wilderness. It's a different world. It's, it's too restrictive, what God said, too narrow. Maybe they thought... The ends justify the means. Well, you know, just as long as we can get the ark there, that's the main thing. Maybe it was pragmatism. They said, it's going to be a lot easier, a lot faster if oxen pull it than for men to carry it. Whatever their reasons were, they decided to copy the ways of the unsaved Philistines to try to do the Lord's work. And that is a constant temptation that every church, this one and any other, has to be on guard against. It's tempting to do things the way of the world. And we, we see it today, don't we? We see churches that have historically stood on the Word of God. They've stood firm. They've stood strong on, on all these things. But in recent years, they begin to waffle about gender, about uh, uh, marriage, about uh, the, the, the role of men and women in, in, in the church and, the, and, and abortion and all these things. And regardless of what the Bible plainly says, They've been so influenced by the world's thinking, they say, well, the Bible does say this, but. I know what God's word says here, but. And they, they either turn a blind eye to what God says or they try to explain it away. And I'm going to tell you, if you try to change the Bible to fit your life instead of changing your life to fit the Bible, you're in trouble. 
And that's what people do. Other times people say, well, the ends justify the means. So we'll use whatever gimmicks we need to so people will come in and have a positive church experience. And then maybe someday, after they've, after they've been here for a couple of years, maybe they'll eventually start to kind of hear the gospel. So you have churches that think they can't go a song service without having a fog machine. You'll think that she, they, they think that they can't have a song service without somebody to, to run the pyrotechnics. Listen, you don't need to, and in fact, you cannot manufacture an experience with God. There's one man I came across this week. He is known proudly as the cussing pastor. The cussing pastor. And he takes pride in the fact that he lets rip profanities. YouTube videos from the pulpit. He uses profanities. In fact, this week I saw on his website, the, the website of the church he pastors, they sell shirts from the church website with profanity on it. People think the ends justify the means. No, God wants his work done his way. And he takes it seriously. Now, I'm not saying that you can't smile and have a good time in church. I'm not saying that you can't have an an upbeat uh, song service or or, uh, modern music or any of that stuff. But what I'm saying is when churches try to copy the ways of the world, they're missing the boat. Because church is not about us. Church is not about, well, it's not about people, period. Church is about God. It's when the people of God meet together corporately to worship God. It's when we come together and we're fed spiritually, we praise Him, and we encourage one another. And so the second error that they tried to do was they tried to do the Lord's work the world's way. Last uh, lesson I think we can draw from this, that I want to draw from today, is that they did not treat the Lord as being holy. They treat Him as less than holy. Now, all these other things I've talked about, they all kind of go, they all have their roots in not treating him with the honor and respect and all that he should have. But this incident with Uzzah, the one that we are, that probably caught our attention the most, is, is really a, a, this issue in a nutshell. Look at verses 6 and 7 again. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the, toward the ark of God and took hold of it. For the oxen nearly upset it, and the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and he struck him down there for his error, your Bible may say, his irreverence, many translations read, and he died there by the ark of God. Now the Bible tells us that Abinadab's descendants were transporting the ark. The Bible says they were Abinadab's son. Understand whenever the Bible uses the language of sons, sometimes it literally means a person's offspring. Sometimes it means grandchildren. Sometimes it means a more distant descendant. So, so imagine this. This is likely the, the son or the grandson of Abinadab. The ark has been in either Uzzah's home or his grandparents' home his whole life. He's seen it when they got together and had a meal together. When they would have a family reunion, when they, if, if it was in his home, when he would get up in the morning to go to school, before he went out to, to, to take care of the sheep, he would see the ark of God. When he went to grandma and grandpa's house, maybe, he saw it. 
His whole life, he was familiar with it. He was comfortable around it. Now, what do they say? Familiarity, what? Breeds contempt. And I don't believe he had contempt here because he was trying to do a good thing, wasn't he? The ark is starting to fall. Uzzah says, I want that to happen. I don't want to get dirty. I don't want to be defiled. So he tries to stop it. But when we're familiar with something, if we're familiar with someone, we often don't give them the respect that's due them. Have you ever noticed how much better you treat people that you work with or maybe strangers than you treat your own family sometimes? Well, it's not because your husband or your wife doesn't deserve the same respect they did when you were dating. But what? You're comfortable. You've got them hooked. You've got a license now, right? So you can, you, but, but that's what we do. We, we're familiar with things, and so it's not as special, not as, not as unique to us. And so Uzzah has been around the ark all his life. The oxen are walking across the threshing floor. We don't know if they said, oh, there's some, there's some grain laying here, and they went off after it. We don't know if it hit a rock. We don't know what happened. An ox stumbled. We don't know. Regardless, the cart starts to tip over. The ark starts to fall. Uzzah reaches out his hand and steadies it, and God strikes him dead. Now, even now, even knowing this, we still probably are like, yeah, but that's... Ah. Yeah, it's kind of, I think I should have done that. Well, I think the key idea here is found in Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 3. And God says there, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. God is long-suffering, he's compassionate, he's forgiving, but he never compromises his holiness for us. God does not change his holiness to deal with sinful man. And, and I just want you to think of, of some instances that we see this in Scripture. You remember Moses and Aaron? Aaron had two sons, Nadab and Abihu. You remember them? And the Bible says that they were anointed as priests, and God has said, this is the, this is the way that my worship is to be done. And, and Nadab and Abihu go into the presence of the Lord. The Bible says that they offered a strange fire that the Lord had not commanded. We don't know what that what exactly that means, what, what exactly that fire consisted of. But whatever it was, it displeased God, and God struck them dead. Fire went out and consumed them, is what the Bible says. And in fact, it's in speaking about Nadab and Abihu's death that God actually says the words I just quoted, that he would be honored, he would be treated as holy. You remember when Moses was leading the Israelites through, through the wilderness? They were always complaining about something. And one time they complained about not having any water. They were thirsty. And so God said, I'll provide for the people. You go to the rock and you strike it. And water came out. Well, sometime later, they got thirsty again. And God said, this time, Moses, what you're going to do is I want you to go to the rock. But you're not going to strike it again. What are you supposed to do? You remember? Speak to it. So Moses goes out, and the Bible says that he hits the rock twice. I wonder if maybe the first time nothing happened, and he said, "Mm, let's see if I need to do this again. He struck the rock twice. God provided water for the people, but here's what it says in, in Numbers chapter 20 and verse 12. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Because 
Moses and Aaron did not treat God as holy before the people they didn't get to go to the promised land. That's serious. Then there's the time that I've already mentioned in Beth Shemesh, where God killed over 50,000 people for looking in the ark. In the book of Exodus, God said, no works to be done on the Sabbath. Don't even kindle fire at your house. And yet the book of Numbers records there was a man that went out and collected sticks, wood, on the Sabbath. And what happened? He was stoned to death. Why? Because God said if you do it, you will die. He was put to death because he disobeyed what God had said. He was not treating God and and the things of God as holy. In the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira. You remember, you remember this in the book of Acts? They come in, they've sold some property, they lie to the apostles, they lie to the Holy Spirit. And what, what does God do? He strikes them dead. So when Uzzah disobeys God, it should not be an amazing thing to us that he suffered the consequence because Numbers chapter 4, verse 4, 4, Numbers 4 15 says that the penalty for touching the ark, guess what it is? Is death. So this is not something that the Uzzah, who'd had the Ark of the Covenant in his family for at least 40 years, maybe closer to 100, this is not something he didn't know. So he got exactly what the law prescribed, but still we kind of hesitate, don't we? We say, yeah, but he was doing things, he was doing this to try and keep the Ark from getting dirty, from, from toppling over. Now, I want you to just think, why do you think God said to transport the ark on poles? Was it because God didn't know that it would be faster to put it on a cart? No. Why do you think he did that? Well, he, put, he, uh, he, he did this so that sinful man would not ever come in contact with the ark. So that sinful man would not touch the ark and defile it. As someone has said, Uzzah presumed his hands were cleaner than the dirt. See, God didn't say carry it on the poles so that it wouldn't get dirty. God said carry it on the poles so that man wouldn't defile it. See, dirt is not sinful. Dirt doesn't defile. Man is sinful. In contact with the holy things of God would defile it. Now there are a couple of lessons that, that I want to touch on briefly before we before we close. And, and of course there are all kinds of things that you could talk about. You could you could focus on the fact that you know what this this was an extreme case. God did what He said He was going to do. The law was fulfilled, and He got His message across because even David, verse nine, David was afraid of the Lord that day. He had a whole new respect for him. You think that the people that saw that, they didn't go home and talk about it? That, that, that was a, a powerful message. But we don't have the Ark of the Covenant with us today, so what are some things that apply to us as far as doing the Lord's work the Lord's way? Well, first, like us have failed to do, we need to do the Lord's, when we do the Lord's work, we need to do so with humility and remember our own sinfulness. We need to remember our own sinfulness because each of us has sin. Each of us has a draw towards sin. Each of us has a a, a plank in our eye or at least a speck. 
And so we need to remember our own shortcomings. And second, we need to guard ourselves against treating God as less than holy. And that was, that was kind of the main thing that was happening. I think this is especially dangerous for those of us who are familiar with the things of God. What I mean is, Uzzah had been around the things of God. He'd been around the ark his whole life. Some of you, like me, have been in church since you were in the womb. I mean, you, you went to church as a kid. You went to Sunday school. You, as an adult, you went to church. You're going to church. Or maybe, maybe you're not. Maybe it wasn't quite that extreme, but, but you're just familiar with the things of God. You, you, you've been exposed to the things of God over and over and over again. And listen, we don't, again, we don't have the Ark of the Covenant, but, but we have ready access to the Word of God. We have easy access to the preaching of that Word. We have the ability to come and worship together without fear of, of, of government intervention. And if we're not careful, we'll become so familiar with those things that we just start to go through the motions of religion and we end up treating God as less holy than He really is. Because we're so familiar with all these things that we've seen and heard and done so many times before. Now folks, listen, this is not a sermon to dissuade you from doing the Lord's work. This is not a sermon to say, don't be involved in ministry because God might strike you dead. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, be involved in those things, but do it the Lord's way. Seek the Lord's direction as individuals. Seek the Lord's direction we need to as, as a church. Don't try to do God's work in the strength of the flesh or in the ways of the world. In all these things that we do, we need to treat God as holy, as separate, as different, as special. And so as we apply these things to ourselves, we need to, to ask whether or not first, if, whether or not we're doing those things. But even a more basic question is, are we involved in the Lord's work at all? Right? Because we can look at this and say, yep, that's right, Pastor. That's the way it should be done. Don't count on me to do it, though, because I'm going to, nope, that's not for me. That's for somebody else. Are you involved in, in, in the Lord's work? Are you involved in ministry? And if not, I want to encourage you to get plugged in and serve here. You say, well, Pastor, you don't have anything, any place that, for me to serve. We'll make a place. Then you can be the head of it. But we need to be involved in those things. And when we do it, we need to do things the Lord's way. And maybe, you say, I'm not serving... And maybe the reason you're not serving is because you're not saved. Right? Sometimes we, we, we kind of skip that fact. And we think that anybody that comes in the door is automatically a Christian. They're not. And it may be that you've come through that door a bunch of times, but you're not a Christian. The Bible says that we all stand condemned before a holy God. But if we'll turn from our sin, if we'll trust in Christ, He'll save us. Why don't you stand with me as musicians come. And as you stand, I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes.
And if what, I, if what I just said describes you, if you are not a Christian, if you've never bowed the knee to Jesus, if you've never repented of your sin, do that today. For those of us who are Christians, are we involved in ministry? Are we doing it God's way? Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be diligent as individual Christians. That you'd help us to be diligent as a church body. To be involved in your work first but then also to be involved in doing your work your way. God, I thank you for this uh, church body that uh, there's not a pressure to put on airs. There's not a pressure to try and manufacture some kind of an experience with you. But God, I pray that you'd help each of us to be diligent to seek you help us be diligent to not uh, take these things that we have uh, so lavishly given to us for granted access to your word access to preaching both in person and online and CDs and TV and so many ways that we can be exposed to it God I pray that you would um Again, help us to do your things your way. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.